Well, welcome to Lesson 9. Today we're talking about various attributes of God under the heading of God's goodness. Uh, Last week, Pastor Christopher took us through several of God's uh, greatness uh, attributes. Um, One reason it's helpful to think of them in those two different categories is that the greatness categories, the the attributes of God which are uh, true only of him, uh, are called, um, well, the other way around, God's goodness qualities are called his communicable attributes. He, He... not just communicates about them, but he it's like a communicable disease, you know, it could pass on from one to another. Uh, God passes along his attributes, his character, to us. But only his communicable attributes, his goodness attributes we're looking at today. His um, non-communicable attributes uh, that are true only of him, you know, the omnis, None of us is going to be omnipresent or omniscient or um, omnipotent, right? Only God is those things. And uh, is it next week um, we'll actually talk about God's sovereignty. That's also, uh, his absolute sovereignty is only true of him. Yeah, he delegates some of his authority and, and sovereignty, but it's all delegated from him. So... The encouraging thing here is that when we look at God's goodness category attributes is that we can be like him. He wants us to be like him in those attributes. Do you remember um, what Satan said to Eve in the garden when he tempted her to sin? First thing he did was put question marks in her mind about what God had actually said, right? Uh, but what was, what was the actual temptation? To be like him. You know, if you eat of that, you're not going to be in the second class category. You're going to be like him. And is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, it's a good thing if you want to be like him in, res- in respect to his character, his moral attributes, his goodness qualities. But if you want to be like him, like omnipotent or omniscient or omnipresent, that's reserved only for God. And it's not surprising that Satan would have that in his heart to want to basically not even be equal with God, but basically to replace him. Um, And uh, well, the rest is history. Uh, that, that motive is often in the hearts of people. Um, Satan is tempting with that today. Uh, they want um, absolute authority, right? Or um, power and, and this kind of thing. And it's all stemming from that lie of, of Satan. And the, the sad irony is that God really does want us to be like him, but in these 
moral character attributes. So let's take a look at at least some of these. Uh, first, I'm on page 72. God is holy. Now here's something. Well, let me go ahead and read it first. God is absolutely holy and will not entertain sin nor allow it in his presence. Indeed, God's eyes are too pure to look upon sin with approval. He cannot even be tempted by sin. So, as I think you probably know, um, where it says God God is not only holy, he's absolutely holy. So he wants us to be holy, but he is absolutely holy. I mean, without any impurity, without any uh, tainting of sin, right? Absolute holiness. Um, and so, what if I could have somebody read the first passage there from Leviticus 19 thing. Speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I the Lord your God am holy. Okay, so what does holy mean when it really comes down to it? What is holy? Set apart. Set apart from Well, set apart from sin, not looking like the world. Okay. For special use, consecrated. Consecrated, separated. Okay. Um, another, another um, synonym that's used here in our in our statement is the word pure. Um, and so, when you think of pure, any any substance that is pure, let's say, um, oh, I don't know, gold, all right? If you get gold sort of as a nugget and in the wild, if you will, um, it, may, it may have some things mixed in with it, right? Uh, it is gold, but it probably has some non-gold, some impurities in it. And so what is done to um, make it pure? Refine, Refine it, right? Um, smelting, whatever that, the process needs to be. Um, and um, it doesn't become, we don't think of it as becoming more gold because it's, it's the same gold, it's now becoming more pure. Um, and with our physical uh, elements like that, physical substances, um, usually we can make them uh, much more pure, if that's a relative term, but often we can't make them absolutely pure, um, just technologically. But God is absolutely pure. No impurities, no, um, no sin, no moral failing, no anything of that kind. And 
don't know about you, but that's I'm of the persuasion, and I'll show you in scripture here some examples, but I'm of the persuasion that we have no concept of just how holy God is. Um, Or if and when we get close to it, um, we're in awe for a while, but then it kind of subsides and we just kind of take it for granted. But the fact that God is completely pure, without sin, without any impurity, um, it's that word absolute, absolutely pure, is hard for us to fathom. Because what's our experience? Anything but that, right? Um, So when he says... um, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Can you think of some things? This is Leviticus. Do you think? Can you think of some things God did in the law, working with the nation of Israel, to demonstrate His holiness? Can you think of some examples? Well, nobody could touch the ark. Okay. Well, even then, they're not touching it um, with his presence in there. They've got the poles and everything, right, to to carry it. Uh, So there's a separateness there. Anything else? I was going to say that we also learned that um, back in the days, it's only the prophets that would go into the inner room where they're supposed to... um, interact with God, and then they ought to have done different sacrifices of um, whatever sin, thoughts, blah, 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 before they could even go into God's presence. Lots of preparation. Yeah, it would be the priests, not the prophets. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But lots of very detailed um, instructions by God to prepare certain people in a certain way before they could even enter the presence of God. Because of his holiness, right? Dan? I think of Moses wanting to see God's glory mm-hmm. and having to be hidden and can only see his afterglow because mm-hmm. we can't look upon his holiness and, and live. It's mm-hmm. too much for us. Yeah. Lots of examples like that, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of um, how the people couldn't approach the, the mountain when God's presence was, was near. They couldn't, couldn't come yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of ironic. Um, you think of like, uh, Mount Sinai, right, when, when he came, whatever. Um, um, if you, the Ten Commandments are listed for us in Exodus 20. Well, if you look at Exodus 19, <clears throat> it talks about the, the sort of the events leading up to it and God's instructions to them. Um, what's interesting is that he was already shaking the mountain and uh, lightning and, and everything and people were actually afraid and and having an instruction not to go near it not to you know go within that boundary of the mountain was something they were very ready to um, to obey because God had already uh, scared them um, with the various manifestations of his presence and so that's that's a good thing um, one of the things God was communicating through the nation to and through the nation of Israel was his holiness. 
and that we can't take that lightly. And there are examples of a few people who did take it lightly, and what happened to them? Zapped, right? Or the earth swallowed them up. Um, God was driving home, among other things, his holiness. And when, you, when that happens, what's the contrast that we see? God is holy, and we are not. That's a huge message God was trying to communicate to and through the nation of Israel. And yet he says, you shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. He wants us to share in his holiness, his separateness from sin, right? his purity, moral purity. Um, and the good news is, well, the bad news is we can't do that on our own. The good news is he, he leads us in becoming more holy. Right. So let's look at some more verses here. Look, uh, the second one there. First Samuel 2. Can someone read that? There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides thee, nor is there any rock like our God. Right. So it was pretty easy to recognize that there's no one holy like him. No, no one has that purity of holiness. People could be called righteous and were called righteous in the Old Testament in terms of basically doing what God had asked them to do and, and, and so on. But no one is sinless, right? And so no one is completely pure morally in holiness. But God, um, out of his love and grace, wants us to share in his holiness and in our case, it's progressive. We become more and more like Christ and, and so on. But uh, when we get to the section on salvation, we'll talk about um, sanctification. Sanctification, that sanct there, I guess it's the Latin root. The sanct means holy, like sanctuary. Um, and, and sanctification is the process or, and usually it's referred to as a process sometimes as a position but the process of becoming more holy and so sometimes I think of sanctification as holification <laughs> uh, it's becoming more and more holy and that's a process God brings about as we obey him and, and follow him okay Let's skip down to Ezekiel 39.7 in the middle of the page. Can someone read that? Okay. And my holy name I shall make known in the midst of my people Israel, and I shall not let my holy name be profaned anymore, and the nations will know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. Yeah, so God is is very concerned, always has been, that his holiness not be um, missed or that it would be, um, uh, well, profane is the word he used, right? It's, it's making light of and 
sort of not even acknowledging the truth of his holiness. But his aim here is, um, and not only Israel, but that the nations will know that I am the Lord, the Holy One. And it's always been his um, intent to... Um, the world has always been his scope, right? And for quite a while, his, his plan was to, to do that through the nation of Israel. These days, it's through the church. Um, but the world is always the scope. And his holiness is something that people need to grasp because the, the better we can grasp his holiness, the better we're going to grasp our own sinfulness and a need for a savior. Right? Okay, so let's go down to near the bottom, James 1.13. Somebody read that? Drina? No one say when he is tested, I am being tested by God, for God cannot be tested by evil, and he himself does not test anyone. Right, so part of his holiness is that he um, not only is separate from and forsakes all sin, but he doesn't lead others into sin either. And Darina, I saw your hand up. How about the very next one, First John 1 John 1.5? And this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Yeah, you see the at all there? Mm-hmm. What, um, what do you get when something is 1% impurity? It's impure. It's, it's impure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what percentage would it need to be in order to be um, at all? No darkness at all. It's 100% pure, right? And that's what God is. Revelation has a couple of good examples here. Revelation 4, 8. Someone read that, Jessica. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Day and night, without ceasing, just surrounding him, saying, Holy, 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 giving acknowledgement of him, and of course, the, the repetition, holy, 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 is emphasis. It's sort of the extreme of holiness, just acknowledging that. And it's the only one of his attributes that is repeated three times. Interesting, isn't it? Yeah. And how about Revelation 15, 4, the very last one there? Someone read that? Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou alone art holy. For all the nations will come and worship before thee. For thy righteous acts have been revealed. Again, there's this uh, worldwide scope of, of God's plan. And, of course, the fruit of that will be people from all over uh, coming and worship before him. I forget if I've mentioned it here before, but uh, I 
I mentioned a few minutes ago that I'd give some examples from Scripture. Do you remember in Isaiah 6 where... Um, uh, actually, can someone turn there? Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 7. Who's got that? I got it. Okay, and could someone else look up Luke 5, 4 through 8? Can someone get that? Okay, Grace, Luke 5. And someone else get Revelation 1, 12 through 18? Who's got that too? So, okay. So Isaiah 6. This is um, uh, Isaiah's vision, right? Go ahead. Isaiah 6, 1 through 7. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Yeah. So, how did, how did he respond when he came sort of face to face with the awesome holiness of God? Woe is me. Yeah, so the, the, the closer we come to understand God's holiness, and even experience God's holiness, the more we're aware of what? Of our own sin. How much we fall short. Um, let's look at Luke 5, 4 through 8. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Same thing, right? His conclusion was a, uh, in this case anyway, Peter's conclusion was absolutely correct. Who could do this but God alone? And being God, he's holy and he's aware, just overwhelmed with his own um, sin and just being incompatible in his very essence with God. Uh, interesting, he would say, you know, you leave me rather than I'll leave you. <laughs> but um, he recognized the incompatibility of a mere mortal, sinful person and God who is holy. Just incompatible in their very essence. 
And so that was his response, just, um, yeah. Well, I, I just think it's kind of telling, um, not, to, not to act like this is fiction, but the blocking in the scene, he ran to Jesus and fell to his knees before him and said, depart from me. So like he wants to worship, he needs to worship because he's holy, but also fully recognizes he should not be in God's presence. But he's not going to leave because he wants to worship. So I just find that interesting. Yeah, he didn't have too far to go because he was in a boat with Jesus anyway. But um, um, but he got the point, right? And it was just immediate. It didn't take any explanation at all. Let's look at uh, Revelation 1, 12 through 18. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. So who was that who was speaking? Well, no, who, who, was, who was this... Oh, oh, who was Jesus. being described? Jesus. Jesus, right? And yes, it was John who um, was probably among the disciples, the one closest to Jesus. Uh, he was the one uh, leaning on Jesus during the Last Supper and very close and, and so on. And yet, that was Jesus in his uh, incarnate state as, as a man when, and actually, um, John was even there at the Transfiguration, which blew him away as well. Um, but here he, he was just seeing Jesus in all his glory, and he falls down like a dead man. Um, it kind of gives you a picture that we can, we can think in our heads what it means for God to be holy, but when we're face-to-face with that holiness, we would do the same thing John did and Isaiah did. We would fall down as dead men because we just can't, we can't wrap our heads around what it means to be 100% pure uh, with no sin and um, the closer we get to that, even as, as people who are being sanctified, the closer we get to that, the more aware we do become of our sin, not quite as quick a response as what John had because it was it was a very um, quick encounter. But um, when we start out in our Christian life, 
we, we are very aware of sins and we, we start forsaking things and whatever. Um, and you would think that the more mature we become, the more we become like Christ, um, the more victory we've had over sin, and so sin is less of an issue. But there is a sense in which the closer we get to Christ, the more aware we are of our sin, and the more motivated we are to, to yield to God's work to make us holy. Right? Um, people have traced uh, the statements of Paul in, in the New Testament where early in his writings he speaks of himself as um, he's defending his apostleship, right? Um, and then eventually he talks about being uh, the least of the apostles. And then later he speaks toward the end of his life being the chief of all sinners. Um, and I, I think that's that's true. The the closer we get, the more Christ-like we become, the more sensitive we are to sin. And so the things that we did as sinful actions, we have shed a long time ago, but we're even more sensitive. We don't want to do anything that would be displeasing to the Lord. And even if it's a thought, right, we're more sensitive to it the more mature we are, the closer we are to Christ. And that's good. Mature wrench into everything, but in Hebrews 4, where it says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So, my only thought here is, How do we explain this? I absolutely believe that Christ is impeccable, that He um, cannot sin, and we have the temptation of Christ, of course. So, what is a good way to explain that to someone when they read that God cannot be tempted and does not tempt anyone, and then you have the temptation of Christ and of this statement also? Well, I would, I would answer by saying there are passages that say God doesn't slumber nor sleep. And yet Jesus obviously did. So the, the issue is that Jesus is both God and man. And so in his deity, he is everything that you're describing, everything we've been talking about in terms of his holiness, his separateness from sin. Um, in his humanity, yes, he could um, uh, be tired, right? He could need to sleep. He needed food. Uh, he needed all those human things. And... Um, um, as that verse says, he, he, in his humanity, was tempted in all things like, like we are, but without sin, right? Um, so I think the key is just keeping, keeping uh, an eye on the fact that Jesus is both God and man simultaneously. Uh, it helps. Okay, holiness. Yes? On holiness, um, in our day world, today's world, what are the practical examples that you could, that we can highlight or share of God's holiness that put people in awe? You know, in those days, we spoke about um, the ark, we spoke about the, um, you know, the 
priest not being able to go in but it's as if we've lost sight of how holy god is and just having that fear of god just see what he is what are the practical things we can share in our world today that just speaks to god's holiness and we just being absolute sinners that we could share because i just see people not having that example that they can things are just yeah tangible examples are helpful aren't they (laughs) yeah i think i think the closest we have to that now is what um, god was sort of indicating here in and through the nation of israel and ultimately through the church is um, as god transforms individuals and they become more and more christ-like and the world looks at them and collectively as the church being um, more and more like God, separate from sin, um, not, um, man, I don't know the right word there, but um, I mean, it's not, not a, it's a genuine um, growth toward godliness. And if people see that, and they see that it's genuine, and it's not just a, a front, that's a visual. I mean, we are to be examples to the world out there. And if we're with some unbelievers and a, a, uh, a temptation or some kind of thing comes up, and they see, or maybe it's a, a, a trial or something that we're we're faced with and people see that we're responding to it in a way that they couldn't imagine responding. That's an example of our not specifically holiness but godliness and holiness is a part of that. Um, So the more transformed we are and it may be even within our own family as people see the change in our lives that God is bringing about uh, it's very much like him putting his holiness on display through the nation of Israel. Um, and we're called to be a part of that that uh, illustration for people. Uh, we don't have to pretend that we've made it, that we're pure, we're a work in process, but it's God's work in us that gives testimony to his goodness. I think that Christian has a danger to fall in Wenism, Kurgusism, all this other in England. So this humanism, that the philosophy, that is a trend. And sometimes when it, we think that being like Christ is to be like this kind of humanism where you're like super soft, super nice, super kind person. And we don't understand that we need to look for the fruit of the Spirit in our life. Mm-hmm. So to be like Christ is to have all this fruit of the Spirit more and more as a character traits in our life. And this is the real be as Christ, not to have this kind of humanism and right. image, false image project to the people. Right. It's all genuine and it's... it's um convincing when it's clear that it's not natural. People realize it's, it's supernatural, the work of God. Um, yeah, you mentioned the fruit of spirit. Um, what are those qualities? God's character, God's attributes. 
and um, it's, it's the fruit, it's the result of the work of the Holy Spirit in us to make us more like Christ. And it's these goodness qualities, right? Um, love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, self-control. These are things that are true of God, and he wants to build in us so we can be like him. And unbelievers can have a measure of that by God's common grace, but to have it genuine from the heart and pure, people notice. And God wants people to notice. And then Bible says, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. Yeah, to be the light of the world. Paul you are the ambassador. Yeah. Ambassadors, yeah, it's all part of that same thing. Yep. Okay, let's move on to loving on page 73. God is loving gracious, merciful, and full of loving-kindness. God loves and shows mercy based on his own character, not based on the goodness or value of his creation. Specifically, um, he doesn't love someone because that someone is lovable or lovely. He loves because he loves in spite of. He's not because of the attributes of the one being loved, but in spite of the attributes of the one being loved. God's love extends even to his enemies. He provides both for the righteous and the unrighteous. He forgives even the worst sinner who turns to him in repentance and faith. So, could someone read for me that first passage there from Deuteronomy 7? The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So there's an, an example that God was giving through the nation of Israel that uh, he had chosen them not because of their qualities, but because of his purposes. And his purpose was to bless them. Uh, he gave that promise to Abraham to bless his descendants after him and and make them numerous, and he was doing that here. Let's go to uh, uh, fourth one down, Matthew 5. Someone read that? Jessica? But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, in order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So that's a verse that's often used to demonstrate God's common grace to people, um, his, his uh, care, not just for the saved, but also for the unsaved. 
Um, and you're all familiar with John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Um, that love of uh, God's kind of love <clears throat> is, again, um, not based on the merit of the ones he loves. I will love those who um, um, meet my standards and so on. Well, he, he does love them, but he also loves sinners, right? Uh, you remember Romans 5, 8? God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, he didn't die for it. He, he doesn't expect us, expect us to clean up our house, to become holy, and then he'll accept us. In fact, if we did that, if that were even possible, there would be no reason for Christ to have died, right? But he died for us while we were ungodly, undeserving. Uh, let's go down to Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. Could someone read that? But God being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. So these terms, mercy, love, grace, they're all combined, right? Can't separate them. Uh... The rest of these verses are all just so encouraging. Uh, Titus 3, 4, and 5. Somebody read that. But when the tidings of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Right. More synonyms there. Kindness, mercy. Um, Hebrews 12.6, of course, uh, uh, quoting directly from the Old Testament, for those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. So his love is not um, just a touchy-feely, emotional kind of thing. He really is concerned about our welfare, like... Uh, parents who love their children, um, correct them. Because it would be very unloving to let them get their own way and end up being fools. Right? Uh, 1 John 3, 1. Could someone read that? Tears, I saw your hand earlier. See how great, how, see how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, because it did not know him. And then later in the next chapter, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, uh, love has its source in God, 
Um, and just like the, uh, the, the rain and, and so on that he says in Matthew 5, he gives in the sun and so on to everybody, uh, people can, can uh, manifest to some extent love because God is gracious, but those who are truly born again and are, are um, empowered by the Holy Spirit of God can love uh, even as God loves. And so it's not a love because of the attributes of the one being loved. It's a, it's a love in spite of the attributes. So, okay. Let's go then. Any questions here about love? You're probably familiar with the um, the three Greek terms for love, different kinds of love. You know, we, we use love in a pretty watered-down way these days. I guess people always have. Um, if I remember correctly, I think the scripture only uses two of these words, but um, the, the one word is phileo in Greek, the brotherly love, the the love out of um, family loyalty and, and you know uh, uh, relationship. And there's there's a natural love there, but God's kind of love is um, agape love, the love that um, doesn't depend on the the relationship the attributes or anything of the one being loved. Uh, it depends entirely on the attributes of the one doing the loving. God is love. Okay. Let's go to forgiving. God is a forgiver of iniquity, transgressions, and sins, and rewards those who diligently seek him. Basic to God's nature is the desire to forgive. God takes no delight in the death of the wicked. Um, so, you know, we use that term forgive, but I think often when we use it in our examples today, we use it um, in a very... Um, I would say incomplete, maybe even misleading way. Um, so what are some examples of forgiveness in, in our, I don't know about daily life, but natural around these days. Let's say if someone were to forgive a debt, okay, so you have a, a loan from a person or the bank or whatever, if that lender forgives the debt, who bears the cost of that. The lender. the lender, right? But often, the presumption of people who use the term forgive is, well, we'll just sweep it under the rug, right? And let bygones be bygones. And um, we'll just forget about it. Well, if, if you just forgot about it in the context of, let's say, a, a, a financial transaction, 
you can't forget about it. The books are unbalanced, right? And in the same way, if God is perfectly holy and perfectly just, he can't just sweep it under the rug, right? That debt has to be paid by someone, and if it's not the debtor, then who's going to bear the the debt? God. And I think we see that, of course, in Christ, but I think we see it also in some of these verses. Let's turn on page 74 down to, we'll start with Psalm 100, toward the bottom. Psalm 100, verse 5. For the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting and his faithfulness to all generations. Yes, it's his basic nature. How about Psalm 145 at the very bottom? The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all, and his mercies are over all his works. So that's his nature, it's his, his, his basic um, uh, approach, if you will, to everyone. It says to over all his works. Uh, let's go to the next one here, Isaiah 55, top of the next page. Darina, saw the hand. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Indeed. The next one there, Jeremiah 33, 8. And I will cleanse them from all their iniquity by which they have sinned against me, and I will pardon all the iniquities by which they have sinned against me, and by which they have transgressed against me. Indeed. And then Lamentations 3, 22. Okay. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never ceases, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning, great is thy faithfulness. Yeah, it's a favorite verse of a lot of people. Uh, let's go down several more to Luke six thirty-six. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. And so being forgiven is very closely associated with, with uh, kindness, mercy, right? Um, and very similar to you shall be holy because I am holy, God's saying, be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Let's go down to the very last one there, First John 1, 9. Mm-hmm. Go memorize that, right? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we have a part. What is our part? Confess, Confess, repent, right? And then, but God stands ready to forgive, to um, uh, make us whole, right? Okay. So I think with with all of these attributes, uh, even though God um, desires and works toward making us 
share in those attributes and become more true of us, uh, our natural, kind of the human natural understanding of these concepts really falls short in terms of holiness, love, forgiveness. Uh, we really have a low standard, typically, apart from God's uh, teaching us in Scripture and his example, uh, but also the way he changes each of us to make us more like him. To see that um, the world's understanding of these things just falls so short. And uh, we have a privilege to, um, to grow in genuine uh, holiness, love, forgiveness, and all those other things that the Holy Spirit works to produce in us. It's exciting. Yeah. Um, for me, something really beautiful is to think that because we were talking the holiness of God and all these birds and we see a little bit of the green, they fall and they said, wow, me. But one day we are going to be with Jesus, dining with him, rejoicing with him, seeing him face to face just because of his sacrifice. And this is going to cover and make us holy and we can enjoy his presence forever. That's it's exciting, huh? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a privilege. Um, you know, other other uh, religions uh, often have an element of wanting to be good and improve themselves, and and usually it's for the purpose of trying to show that they're acceptable. Um, to whatever God they're worshiping. But when, when um, you get them to describe what the afterlife is like, um, they just have no concept of what you were describing, of... of uh, being without sin, being in the presence of our Creator, worshiping Him. Um, you know, the, the, the Muslims long for paradise, and their concept of paradise from the Quran is, is sort of, not sort of, it's entirely a man-centered um, thing. So it's all about the pleasures that I didn't necessarily, that, that I didn't experience, but I, 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 I didn't partake in, in my earthly life to be acceptable. But then when I get to paradise, I can splurge with all those things, and it's all about me, not about um, having a relationship with my creator and enjoying him forever and worshiping him. It's just so different. And um, just think of the disappointment a lot of people are going to have when they go into that next life. Yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's true when someone comes to Christ in salvation that confession, repentance are, are a part of that. 
but that's only the start, right? So we're not perfectly holy and, and righteous just because God saved us. Um, he works in us to make us, well, like the fruit of the Spirit. He builds that in us, makes us more and more like him over time um, in his own sovereign way. And part of that process is our responding to the sins he points out in our lives. He's, he's lovingly, sovereignly saying, you know, that was a sinful action or thought or word, you know. Um, and the Holy Spirit living in us convicts us of that. Um, the more mature we are, probably the quicker that conviction comes. He doesn't mess around. Um, and we could respond to that by rationalizing, well, everybody else does it. Right or I've done this a whole you know, my whole life and you haven't convicted me yet. What's the big deal? That's all rationalization, right? How should we respond? Confessing that is admitting it, and then repenting, which is forsaking it, right? Um, and that process of forsaking sin does what? Makes us more and more like Christ. He builds that in us. And uh, that reproving, that correcting, that convicting is an integral part of that in our sanctification. And that's one of the most, to me, exciting things, besides being in God's presence, about heaven is there won't be anything to repent of or confess because we will be incapable of sinning. And... Um, We'll get to this in the salvation section, but that glorified state is one where we're free, we're saved from the very presence of sin. Yeah. Not just having victory over it on a day-to-day -day basis, but being freed from it. Especially being free from doubt, because like even the strongest believer on earth is still going to have times where their faith is not as strong as other days. Like yeah. heaven, perfect faith. Yeah. Zero doubt. That would be amazing. We're we're all a work in process. Yeah. Okay. Um, any other thoughts, questions? God's communicable attributes, the attributes that we can share in and he wants us to share in. That's a natural response to worship him when we're cleansed. Right? Okay, uh, real quickly on page 76, the uh, uh, applications. We've seen some verses that say, you know, you should be holy because I am holy, right? Um, what about loving? Is there an example you think of in scripture that... Okay. Um, that's true. That's a very good standard. What, what I'm looking for is a case where um, God's love is the model for our mm -hmm. love. Which 
we love because he first loved us? Yeah. 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 That's a good example. Also from First John. That's the one. Yeah. But after they quitted along with long suffering, patient, but that I don't know how that's a long suffering and patient means love, God love. Suffer is suffer some <laughs> suffer suppress some bad pleasure. So they consider the love is long suffering, love is pain. Yeah, the, the King James Version used the word long-suffering for patience. Um, the idea there is that when we're patient, um, let's say we're patient with somebody else, we're in that process, we are suffering... Um, uh, depending on what the issue is, the, the, someone is imposing on us, let's say, and we're patient with them, we're, we're gentle and patient, uh, we're, we're uh, suffering the, the whatever it is they're imposing on us uh, without complaint because we're patient. That's sort of an example. Grace? I was just going to say a direct example of that that comes to mind for me is I'm pretty sure every single mother has been hit in the face by her baby at least 50 times before the first birthday. You still love your baby. You put up with the fact that they're flailing around and hitting you all over the place. But you still love your baby, so you suffer through that until they reach a point where you know they have control of their own limbs and don't hit you anymore. Yeah, it could be we're, we're uh, imposed on by other people. We're patient with them. It could be we're imposed on by circumstances around us. And we suffer through that gently, patiently, right? Um, knowing that God's working through that for his good. And we're okay with that. Well, when you see the word long-suffering, just think patient. Being patient. And that may be required for a long time. Mm-hmm. And if, if, we're, if we're concerned that it's taking such a long time, we're not very patient. We're not long-suffering. <laughs> yeah. Um, the one example I had of um, following God's example of love is in Ephesians 5, where it tells husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Right, just a direct example, and it gives specifics there. You know, laid down his life for the church. Uh, okay. Well, let's go ahead and and wrap up um, and then for today, and then we'll continue these attributes of God next week. <laughs>